Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee, where we have conversations for transformation. Our mission statement is that we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. And I hope that what I go over in the next few minutes will do exactly that, that it will create many conversations between you and your friends. I want to talk about the essential things before helping someone to change. And so the big idea in this webinar is before you go to the coffee shop, to talk to someone, before you meet them in the church building for a counseling session, before you go to the office and do biblical counseling with an individual, you haven't even talked to them yet. I would like for you to spend some time thinking about your heart, your attitude toward that individual before you start talking to them. And so how do you think about a person before you begin caring for them? What is your attitude toward them? before you start talking to them. Perhaps if I bring a couple friends of Charlie Brown into this to illustrate my point, it is very strange. It happens just by looking at you, so said Lucy. Linus responded, what happens? Lucy said, I can feel a criticism coming on. Do you have that person in your life that you're trying to help? But when you think about them, you feel a criticism coming on. The primary passage in this webinar is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. I will put it on the screen for you. I will not walk through it at this point, but we will do that throughout the webinar. But I just want you to see the passage of Scripture, and of course you can look at it in the Bible if you wish. But this is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul's affection for the Corinthian church is a profound declaration of the grace of God and a fantastic template for us to think about and model as we approach the tremendous task of discipleship. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 as a template for pre-counseling before we ever get to the place of counseling someone. Now, we know that in verse 10, Paul began talking or began counseling the Corinthians. But as we go through the first nine verses, we see a template, and we get a snapshot into Paul's heart. Not just his heart, but his affection for these people. Of course, as you contextualize what Paul was saying to them, to the actual individuals that he was talking to, then you realize that this is a profound declaration of God's, uh, of Paul's rather, attitude toward him, which brings us to the big idea, Paul's exemplary attitude toward the Corinthians and his extraordinary affection for the Corinthians came from his divine perspective of the Corinthians. And so I trust over the next few moments I will be able to unpack this and may the Spirit of God work in all of our hearts, especially as we think about the more difficult people in our lives. Now, as far as this webinar is concerned, there are two types of people in our world, Christians made in the image of God and non-Christians made in the image of God. To put them in two big general categories, that's it. Either they are believers or unbelievers, regenerate or unregenerate. And it's important to know that I am talking primarily 
about Christians. I'm talking to Christians. Uh, it is Christians interacting with other believers. And that's what Paul was doing in Corinthians. Now, we could make application to those who aren't Christians because they are made in the image of God. And because of the Imago Dei, we should have a respectful and proper attitude toward people whom we may vehemently disagree with, that we just cannot go on with them in any way, shape, or form. We just disagree with these individuals, whomever they may be, and they are non-Christians. There is application that you can make from this webinar, but again, uh, we're taking this in context of who Paul was talking to, and we're going to consider the Corinthians. Generally speaking, they were believers, and this is what Paul was communicating in the first nine verses. And so as I go through this webinar, we are, we are teaching, or I'm teaching, is primarily for Christians, and it is about Christians. There are some people who are hard to be attracted to. And when I find myself thinking like this, I know that I have lost my divine perspective, and my discipling of them is on the verge of being ineffective. Now, perhaps you have had this as you look in the mirror of your discipleship life, that there are some people uh, where your discipleship became ineffective, and as you connect the not dots, you recognize that, well, a lot of it had to do with my attitude. I became impatient with them. I became unloving toward them. I became harsh toward them. I have done that many times, especially early in my counseling career, as I was scrambling and trying to figure out how to do the work of discipleship as I was maturing in, in the gift. I also found that I was harsh and impatient. Uh, I was not treating people with respect, compassion, or kindness. My courage had more of a harsh tone to it. And this is something that we want to be in tune because we can disciple people with all the right answers, but if we do not have a right attitude toward those people, even if what they have done is legitimately wrong, that they are erring, maybe they are sinning, even sinning against us, that is when we definitely need to guard our hearts. And so the essential things, one of the big ideas that I want to communicate, that there are some people who are hard to be attracted to. And if you find yourself thinking like this, you can lose your divine perspective. And I want to explain what that means as we move along. But if you lose your divine perspective on a fellow image bearer, then your discipleship is on the verge of being ineffective. A divine affection for an individual must precede the discipleship of an individual. Now, perhaps that statement is not as clear as it could be. I hope that as I move along here that it will become a picture perfect in your mind that you'll have a 2020 understanding of what I'm saying here. And so I do want you to screenshot this in your mind and remember it because this is absolutely essential. If we do not have divine affection, meaning we cannot have affection for some people just on a human level and human generated, but we must have affection that comes from God that ties it back to the image of God, whether the person is a believer or not a believer. This this is what James was saying in chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, that we bless God with our mouths and curse men who are made in the image of God. With a divine perspective, then we understand that all people saved and lost are made in the image of God. And with that divine perspective, we can muster up a modicum of divine affection. 
divine respect for them, and that has to precede the discipleship of an individual. Before you get to the coffee shop, before you get to the church building, before you start doing biblical counseling, divine affection for that person must be rooted in and governing our hearts. In fact, I would appeal to anyone not to attempt to correct an individual with whom you do not feel an extraordinary affection for them. Now, some of you will say, well, extraordinary affection it sounds quite hyperbolic. I suppose it is, but maybe this is the best way to say it, similar to what Jesus was saying in Luke 14, that if you do not hate your father, mother, brother, sister, and your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus elevated the bar so high that it's impossible to get to at some points, but it is the stretching to that goal that helps us to mature in whatever the process is. And so thinking of it in a hyperbolic way of extraordinary affection for a nasty person, well, you might not have extraordinary affection. But with the bar that high, I trust that whatever affection you have with them, for them, will be adequate and it will pass the smell test. Because I'm sure that you've been in situations in your life where someone was correcting you, and it became apparent that they did not like you, they did not have affection for you. How did it feel? How did it come across? It doesn't come across the right way. Now, there are some people that you get in front of, and you do not have extraordinary affection for them. That just means you have to work doubly hard in the closet so that you can get to at least a modicum of affection for them before you start opening your mouth and bringing corrective care or discipleship care to them. So with those things in mind, let's take a look at the outline. There are three points. Point number one. Paul's perspective on discipleship began with the call from God. Number two, Paul's environment for discipleship was grace-filled. Number three, Paul's confidence for discipleship was rooted in the gospel. Let's take point number one. Paul's perspective on discipleship began with the call from God. Let's go back to our text for those of you who are watching by video. You see the entire text, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9 on the screen, and I have, I have grayed out part of the passage just highlighting the first part for point number one. And so the first part for point number one goes like this. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord, uh, name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And what I've highlighted inside this first part are the wor words called. They're twice here. Paul says, Paul called by the will of God, meaning that some point in my past, God reached into my life, regenerated me, and called me to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul was looking in the rearview mirror and thinking about the prior activity of God, talking about himself. Sometime in the past, God did this for me, making me not only an apostle, but more importantly, God's child. And then he continues in the first part of this passage, he says, uh, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, 
called to be saints together. And so we see the word called again in this passage, and again, Paul is looking backwards, and he is talking about the prior activity of God. Now, that is a key statement. When you are working with a Christian, helping them in counseling, discipleship, parenting them, being a friend, whatever we want to call it, as you're helping them using God's Word to mature into Christ's likeness, you're talking to a believer. You're talking to someone whom God has already acted upon, and that is the big idea in point number one. Paul's perspective, point number one, on discipleship, it began with the call from God, as he illustrated twice as he opened up the Corinthian letter, chapter 1, book number 1. Meaning that God was there before you. Before you showed up in the coffee shop to disciple this person, to do life over coffee, God was already there in eternity past. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 what God did. And this is how he thought about the person that you're discipling, meaning this is how God thinks about the person that you are caring for, whether it's your husband, wife, child, extended relative, someone in the church, or any other believer. This is how God thinks about that person. And so let's pull up Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where Paul said to the church at Ephesus, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is who you were in your past, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God. Now here is the great conjunction. We're still in the past in this individual's life. This is what Paul was thinking about with the Corinthians, that they're called to be saints. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Again, that is Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And so when Paul says that the Corinthians are called to be saints, he is reflecting back on the prior activity of God and as he told the Ephesians here, uh, this is what that means, that God has raised them up. This prior activity of God reminds us that we responded to God after God acted on us first. God began a relationship with himself while we were dead in our sins. Like Lazarus dead in a grave in John chapter 11, we could not respond to God. He came along, spoke into our lives. He awakened us. We are now alive and walking upright. The Spirit of God is in us. We are children of God. He has made us alive. The prior activity of God before you ever show up at the coffee shop. God took an interest in the person you are discipling long before you ever knew they existed. The individual that you are discipling, and let's say, for the sake of argument, that they were born again before you all ever met, which happens with a lot of our relationships. We meet, meet someone, we begin talking, and they tell you that they are a Christian, and they are. 
Well, that just means before you ever stepped into their timeline, God was already in their timeline working. He had called them from the wrath. He called them from darkness, made them alive. That means that you are discipling, essentially, God's friend. Or you are discipling the father's child. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, let's imagine that you have a child and you send your child to me. Let's say your child is 24 years old. And your child comes to me and they're difficult. They're rebellious. Now, they name the name of Christ, but they're caught in sin. And you want me to counsel them. How should I think about them? Well, one of the things that I want to do is I want to honor you. That is your child. I don't want to be disrespectful to your child. You have friends like this. Uh, you know their children. And one of the reasons that you're respectful uh, to the child, one of the reasons that you want to care for the child is because you love the parents. In this case, you love the father, and you want to honor and respect the father because you know that you are you're messing with the father or you're messing with the child that belongs to this father. Well, that's the way every Christian is. As Paul was looking at these believers in Corinth, and there's a lot of reasons to not like them. We have preached against the Corinthians probably more than any other people group in the Bible because they seem to be some of the most difficult people in the New Testament. But when Paul was looking at this people group, the first thing he was doing was calibrating his perspective on them and his perspective on discipleship began with the call from God. As bad, nasty, irritating, frustrating, and mean-spirited as the Corinthians were, and they were, they knew that Paul not only loved them, but he had faith that God would finish what he had begun when he called them. You see, implied in that word called, we know this from Paul's theology, we can hear Philippians 1, 6 all up in this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. You know Philippians 1 through uh, uh, chapter 1, verse number 6, that what God has begun, he is going to complete. Paul knew that God was going to finish the task with these people. Paul knew that he was stepping in the timeline. It was the time when they were nasty. It was the time when they were frustrating. It was the time when they were mean-spirited. That's the time on the timeline when Paul stepped in. But Paul did not have a narrow view of the timeline. Paul had an eternal view of the timeline. As he looked back and said, God has called you. There has been a prior activity of God on your life. Therefore, he had faith that God would finish what he had begun. Now, he didn't have so much faith in them. He had faith in God because God is a finisher. And as he told the folks in Philippi what God has begun, that he will certainly finish. Now, if we're looking at the people that we're discipling, whether it's our husbands, our wives, our children, our parents, our friends, any believer, if we're looking at them with this divine perspective, then it will calibrate our hearts 
Uh, it will govern our tongues and any temptation toward mean-spiritedness in return to mean-spirited people. Well, that will be assuaged because we are governed by a divine perspective. And we know that whatever God has begun in them, he is going to complete it. We might have to endure a rough patch with them. And by the way, that's typically the only time that uh, God has us interacting with these people in need of counseling care or discipleship care. They need us when they're going through a rough patch. And so we step into or onto a timeline that began a long time ago. Paul's perspective on discipleship began with the call from God. And so let's make a couple of application questions with point number one. When you are aware that God has already acted on an individual in need of your correction, you will have faith for change and perseverance for the process. Now, I'm talking about you in this application statement here, the disciple maker, uh, the one who is doing life over coffee, helping another person. If you are calibrated by God's prior activity on that individual's life, then you will have faith for change. Not faith in them necessarily, but faith in God. You know that the cards are stacked in your favor because God's going to finish this thing. It will not only give you faith for change, but you will have perseverance for the process. As you go through that rough patch, God will give you empowering favor. You will be a persevering saint because you're so dialed in to what God has done in the past. And you will have an eschatological perspective as you look into eternity future and see this person glorified, meaning... I can persevere through this rough patch with them that God in his mercy and mystery has called me to the scene and he wants me to walk them through the rough patch. That is a divine appointment. Uh, it is the highest of opportunity to be able to do that. Thus, we need to make sure that our hearts and minds are calibrated by this divine perspective, recognizing that God was already there before you showed up. Number two, the individual that you are correcting, they will also be aware. If you have faith for change and perseverance for the process, I, I laugh a little bit here because I'm pretty sure many of you have been on the end of a discipleship situation where the person was bringing care to you. And perhaps you have wondered I don't think they have faith for change. I don't think they believe that I can change. And I don't think that they're going to make it. I don't think the discipler is going to make it. I'm not sure the biblical counselor is going to make it. They can sense it. Uh, your, cor your correction or your observation or your counseling may be spot on. But your attitude can bleed through like a, like a, a stain under, a, a, under white paint. And they can sense that, ah, you know, there's something wrong with their attitude here. They're telling me the right stuff, but I'm not even sure if they have faith for the process or perseverance for the process either. And so we want to make sure that we're calibrated by a divine perspective. It will not only help us, but it will encourage the person that we're talking to. They will lean into our faith, which happens so often in counseling situations because they don't have faith for the process. 
they're unsure if they will change. And if you come along and if you're unsure and you're not able to persevere through the process, well, now both of you are in a ditch. And at least one of us should be out of it before we ever open our mouths. And Paul most definitely was because he had a divine perspective. Paul's perspective on discipleship began with the call from God. Question number one, what are you more aware of? The previous activity of God in a person or the present deficiencies in the person that you are discipling? Big question here. And so it's not that you are ignoring the present deficiencies in the person that you are discipling, but there must be a 1A and 1B, and 1A absolutely has to be that you're more aware of the prior activity of God in this person. That has to be the main thing that's controlling you. If that flips to where you're more aware of the deficiencies in the person, then whatever you say is just not going to come out right, and it's not going to land right on the individual. Number two, how do you need to change as it relates to those who receive your care, assuming that you need to change? Maybe you don't. Maybe every person that you meet, you have a divine perspective, and it calibrates your heart. Therefore, the things that you say are not only correct, according to God's Word, but the attitude in which they are delivered. They're so dialed into God's perspective, God's divine call on their lives, that the individual receives it, and they feel your faith and your perseverance for the process. But if you do need to change, will you make a specific plan to change? Number three, do you have affection for the folks God has placed in front of you to disciple? Now, what needs to happen sometimes, or at least in my case, before I start talking to a person, I need to pray for that person. And I'll talk more about that later, but that is the key to having divine perspective on them if you need to uh, mature in your love for them. And so if you don't have that divine affection, now I know in our current age where we live with technology, uh, that we can put a comment on socials or we can send an email or a text message or some other form of communication in a rapid fire way. And because of that, it's actually debilitating to the relationship because of the impulse to, rep to respond impulsively uh, that we're not. Uh, slow. Uh, we're we're not slow to hear, and quick, uh, quick to hear and slow to speak. Uh, we are quick to speak, and not slow to hear. However, I butchered that up in James, but you know what I'm saying, and that we are impulsive in our communication to them. And technology actually uh, is not a good friend uh, for those of us who need to work on our affection for those who are placed in front of us. Now, perhaps sharing your response to this question with a friend would serve both of you, because I would imagine, I'm pretty sure that they have been in a similar place. And so do you have affection for the folks God has placed in front of you to disciple? Number four, do you realize God greatly loves the person you are discipling? They were called to be saints. God was back there in eternity past. I mean, even before they were born. As he said in Jeremiah 1, that before I formed you, I called you to be a prophet unto the nations that God knew in eternity past. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 1, by the way. Perhaps we'll look at that in a moment. But do you realize God greatly loves the person you're discipling, and he has called them, implying that he will finish what he begun? That should give us all sorts of confidence when we're talking to someone. 
And then number five, do you know that God crushed his son on the cross to save the person in your care? Now that elevates it appropriately, biblically. And maybe for some that would be a great way to think about the person in your care. God in eternity past knew that he would crush his son on a cross for the person that you're now caring for. We must be gospel-centered when thinking about our care for others. The outline is Paul's perspective on discipleship began with the call from God. Number two, Paul's environment for discipleship was grace-filled. Let's look at the text. In the middle of chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Maybe you're having a problem with your spouse. Could you go up to your spouse right now and say, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. Perhaps you're having a rough time with a child. Can you say that? Or maybe a friend, someone in church, or some other person on the workplace, at the workplace, or in school. What Paul is saying here, and again, you do have to contextualize it with the Corinthians, the Corinthian church. They were nasty, irritating, frustrating people. They challenged Paul. They were mean-spirited to Paul. And he says, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. I want to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 through 5, because it will resonate with 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Remember, this is Paul's theology. This is also his orthopraxy. This is how he applied theology as well. And so he was not inconsistent that he would think one way about the Corinthians, another way about the Thessalonians, and another way about the Ephesians. His theology was consistent from church to church. And that's why this text in 1 Thessalonians is so important, because it extrapolates, it teases out even more Paul's attitude toward the Corinthians as we see his attitude toward those at Thessalonica. And so in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, starting at 2, going to verse number 5, he says, We give thanks to God always for you. Doesn't that sound like 1 Corinthians? constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering you before God our Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, for those looking at the video, you can see I've highlighted several words and ideas here from this text. We'll look at them. He says, we give thanks. So again, before he started writing to the Thessalonians, he's telling them what he has been doing, in may, maybe in the most recent past. But he has been praying for them, not just one time. He says, we give thanks to God always. And if you don't get the point, he goes on to say, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love. Now, this would be a good text to recite to your spouse or to your child or to your friend. I mean, if it's true to you, 
and it should be. This is the attitude that we should have toward other believers, especially those within our care. And so Paul is telling them what his mind was like before he started counseling them. This is his attitude. He says, uh, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he says hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, our confidence, our belief in our Lord Jesus Christ, well, again, he's looking backward, and he's talking about the prior activity of God on their lives. They can't have present hope in the Lord Jesus Christ unless they've had prior hope, meaning God has already acted upon them. And so Paul is reminding them that there was a prior activity of God on their lives, which creates that steadfastness, that work of faith and, lo- and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, we know, brothers, loved by God. That's that prior activity again. So important here. Again, you're stepping into the timeline of a believer, as Paul was doing in Thessalonica and also in Corinth, and he's reminding both demographics that there's been a prior activity of God in their lives, and he knows it. And he goes on to say to the Thessalonians, he has chosen you. And so three times in this passage, he hearkens back to the prior activity of God, and that situates his mind, stabilizes his soul, and it controls what comes from his mouth. Let's make some application here. Point number two. Question number one, before Thanksgiving becomes public, it should be a private act. It must be Godward first, a posture showing the ultimate affection that you offer to others. And this is what we see in both Corinthians and in Thessalonica, that Paul has been praying for this pe- for these people. And here, uh, the application statement is, before Thanksgiving becomes public, it should be a private act. And so this is not flattery. He's just not saying this because it sounds good in the moment, and he just thought it up. No, he's not thinking it up. He is telling them what he has been doing in the past before he publicly proclaims his gratitude for them. In fact, the way that he publicly proclaims his gratitude toward them, he does it by telling them what he's been doing privately before he met them. That it was Godward first. It's a posture showing the ultimate affection that you offer to others. When you walk up to your spouse and you're struggling with this person, or any other struggling individual in your life, and you say, I have been thanking God for you. I have a posture before God. It is Godward first, and that is the ultimate affection that I can offer for you. And I just want you to know that I have been praying to God. Now, in that statement and what I'm saying here, I am not suggesting that you withhold any correction whatsoever. I'm not recommending that you withhold any courageous counsel if that's what is needed in that situation. Going back to what we know is about to happen in 1 Corinthians, Paul, in verse number 10, he's going to begin some very challenging, courageous, complex counseling uh, for these individuals. He does not hold back at all. But that's the point that I'm trying to make. Before you give that difficult, complex counseling to someone There has to be a heart of gratitude toward that someone. Number two application that we can make, 
There is a discernible difference between a lack of gratitude for someone and gratitude simmered and soaked in private before a holy God. Such an important point. And this too will pass or not pass the smell test. Maybe you can reflect charitably, not with a bad attitude, towards someone who has corrected you in the past. You know if there was a discernible difference. You know the discernible difference between a lack of gratitude for someone and gratitude simmered and soaked in private before a holy God. And so you think how they corrected you. Did you feel their affection for you? Did you feel their gratitude? Now, of course, we want to address the log in our eye as well. Uh, do you have that same affection and same gratitude toward the difficult person in your life? This would be a wonderful conversation to have with someone. I mean, if our goal is to mature into Christ's likeness, uh, then the things that I'm saying here will be so beneficial in that maturation process, as it most definitely is to me. I am not communicating these things as though I have arrived uh, to the level where Paul is. That's not true at all. These are things that I have to work at, and I think if any, if any way that I would quote Paul, I would say I die daily because you keep interacting with these people. They come in and out of your lives at different times, and so this is something that we need to carry with us all the time and make sure that we are calibrated by God all the time so that when they do come into our lives that we are governed by a divine perspective. We have a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. They will feel it even as we're bringing some stiff, possibly some stiff corrective care to them. Application statement number three, God's answer for the disappointed soul, meaning you, talking about you now as the discipler, God's answer for the disappointed soul is gratitude for others. See, there is a reciprocal effect here. Not only do they feel your affection, not only do they experience your gratitude, not only does it open a door for you to bring corrective care to them because they know that you have affection for them, but this is therapeutic. Gratitude is therapeutic, as opposed to the grumbling spirit, the complaining spirit, the cynical spirit, the mean spirit. If you say any of those things, or the gossiping spirit, if you say any of those things about someone to somebody else, well, then your soul will continue to be disappointed Wanted. That is self-sabotage of the soul, to continually express disappointment about someone, even if you're only expressing it to yourself. When we finally learn something after years of trying, there may be a temptation to impose an unrealistic self-righteous timetable on others to change. And this can be a temptation for those of you who are mature, for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for a long time. Sometimes it's easy to forget. We can have amnesia about the journey. We fail to recognize that it has taken 40 years to learn these things. And then when we meet someone who has only been a Christian for six months or six years, for that matter, and they are not doing things that we're doing now, we forget that it took us 40 years to accomplish these things, and we impose an unrealistic, self-righteous timetable on others to change. I don't sense this in what Paul was saying to the Corinthians. Paul was the mature of the mature. I mean, he was a great apostle who loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He had a great capacity for discipleship and 
understanding complex theological truths and communicating them and counseling people through their difficulties. But you never get the sense that he was imposing where he was, mapping his experience and his life over them as though they should be there by now. And for some of us, that's where we particularly need to guard our heart because we can forget our own journeys as we got to the place that we are. As I think back uh, through each decade of my Christian experience, there were some mighty fails. There were some mighty blunders uh, in my life. I want to remember them, not for morbid introspection, woe-is-me, sin-centered mindset. No, not at all. Uh, but for a humbling purposes, recognizing that uh, there is a process of transformation, and God is faithful to the end, no matter how many times I find myself crawling through uh, the valley floor. And there will be times when others will be crawling through the valley floor, and they will be they will be unkind, they will be nasty, they will be mean-spirited. And as we stand on the mountainside, we want to be careful how we communicate to them, not as those who have arrived, but as a fellow, a fellow sufferer and struggler who wants to come alongside them with faith for the process and perseverance for the process because God is a finisher. Number five statement, application statement, the process of change happens in a context of grace. And I think everything that I've said thus far uh, speaks to that. Uh, you feel, sense, see, read the context of grace in which Paul is communicating. And then number six, you will feel a criticism coming on rather than being an encourager apart from God's divine perspective. Cannot overemphasize this point. We have to be dialed in on this God's divine perspective, or we will find ourselves saying and doing unkind things even to people whom we love. And then number seven, as a discipler of Christ, we have the privilege to draw attention to evidence of God's grace in a person's life. When I use the phrase evidence of God's grace, what I mean by that is that we find evidence of them doing good things. We find evidence that God is work at work in their life. A Christian is not a total failure. A Christian is not 100% messing up 100% of the time. There is evidence out there that God has been working in their lives. And as a disciple of Christ, we have the privilege to draw attention to the evidence that we see of God's grace in their life. What have they received that was not given to them? So when they do good things, it means God was there. It means God is operative in their life. It is so easy to be nitpicky. It is so easy to draw attention to the things that they do wrong. That's just the way that we are. Our natural bent is total depravity, Adamic people, and therefore we have a sindar, like a radar, and we can identify sin as quick and as efficiently uh, as anyone else, and that's where we have to be careful. 
what is difficult and what is challenging is to be able to identify and isolate where God is at work in their lives and then drawing attention to it because we want to be encouragers as disciples of Christ. We have the privilege of doing that. And there is no question that Paul is identifying and isolating evidence of grace in the Corinthians' lives, and he's telling them all about it as he prepares to bring his corrective care to them. And so Paul's environment for discipleship was grace-filled. Let's look at a couple of application questions. Number one, what level of affection do you have for those within your care? As you know, there will be some who are easier to love than others, no doubt. And our temptation will be to gravitate toward those who are easier to love, no doubt. And so perhaps you can think about your small group. If you participate in a small group as you go around the room, think about each individual in your small group. Who's easy to love and who's not? It's okay. You can keep those assessments to yourself. But as you assess those within your sphere of care, perhaps focusing on those who are more difficult to love at this moment would be a good exercise for your own sanctification and then work through uh, what I'm teaching here in this webinar specifically toward the, the most difficult people in your life. Now, if you can't get there, if you can't have affection for them, respect for them as image bearers, well, then it does speak to there is something wrong with you, and it does have to be addressed because here's what's going to happen. If you can't get it right on those who disagree with or dislike or have a hard time gravitating toward, well, there's going to be other people in your life. You can guarantee that the Lord in his kindness and mysterious mercy upon you will bring people into your life, and he will help you to get it right. And so this is something that we want to focus on. When there's someone in my life, and it happens somewhat regularly, when they come into my life and they're difficult to get along with, these are the things that I think about. I'm not saying that's easy to get to a place of affection. I'm not saying that it's easy to get to that place to where I'm not acting like Lucy toward Linus. I feel a criticism coming on. No, that is a work. It is a work of grace, but we must cooperate with God when he brings the difficult person in our life so that we can mature. I mean, who knows? It could be that God has brought this person into our lives because it's more about helping us than helping them, at least in this moment. Number two, how often are you simmering and soaking in private about those who receive your care? This is a huge question because I do think, being a married person for a very long time, it is much easier to respond to someone on a horizontal plane and many times unrighteously and unkindly. And when that happens, it really points to, and what you'll find in almost all cases, that there hasn't been time simmering and soaking in private about those. Sometimes the most effective thing that you can do when caring for another person is not talking to them, but spending time in prayer, getting to the place to where you can express thanksgiving and gratitude for the grace of God in their life. And then when you come out of that closet with genuine affection for them, imagine how that will transform your communication to them. The second part of this application question, again, we're point number two, Paul's environment for discipleship was grace-filled. 
The question was, how often are you simmering and soaking in private about those who receive your care? And the second question, would you share your thoughts about this question with someone? I would encourage you to do that. You can screenshot this if you're watching my video. You can screenshot all of the slides that I'm showing here. And you can use them. In fact, I would encourage you to even show this video in a small group context. Uh, that would be fantastic. Or husband and wife or families to watch this. And you can stop the video and work through the questions. And it would be an amazing journey. The video is an hour, but you know you could take days and weeks to go through it. And that would be fantastic. Number three. Is the person you are discipling aware of your expressions of thanksgiving for them? You remember what I read in 1 Thessalonians. Of course, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 1 through 9. There is no question that they are very much aware of what Paul thought about them. By the way, the people that we disciple, they are aware of what we think about them. That's not the issue. They are aware. But the question is, what are they aware of? Are they aware of our expressions of thanksgiving for them? Meaning you have a habit of identifying, isolating, and sharing evidences of grace with them. That you are an encourager, an encourager who does not withhold correction. But here are our options. We can never encourage, and everything that we do with them is corrective. Or we can always encourage and never be corrective. Both of those are wrong. Or we can encourage one another, and then out of that encouragement is corrective care whenever it's necessary. In fact, if you look at it like a whiteboard with a dot in the middle of it, that's how it should look, theoretically. That the context of grace is the big white board, and the dot is the corrective care. The bigger that dot is inside that white board, well, the more challenging it will be for them to listen to you. But if your corrective care is in an ocean of encouragement and kindness, you're for them, you're thanking God for them, they will receive it, and the chances of them responding to you are far greater. Question number four, are you more prone to complain or give thanks for others, especially those folks who are more challenging to love? I'll just move past that since we've covered a lot of that. There's an element of redundancy here, but... That is intentional because I think it's important that we drive this nail home, drive this point home, that we understand how our attitudes toward people make all the difference. Number five, as you relate to someone, what are you more aware of, evidence of God's grace or the need for growth in their lives? If you're more focused on the dot versus the whiteboard, I would appeal to you to change. Finally, number six, as you relate to your spouse, let's bring it home if you're married, or child if you have a child or children, when was the last time you informed them of God's grace in your in their lives. Why does this matter? An excellent conversation to have maybe with them, especially if you're not prone to encourage them, having a conversation with them about a lack of encouragement could be an opportunity, a leadership opportunity, and an opportunity for growth. How do you need to respond? Paul's environment for discipleship was grace filled. And then point number three, Paul's confidence for discipleship was rooted in the gospel. As we look at the last part of the nine verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. As you look at the screen, you see that I have underlined four different parts. Sustain you to the end. Uh, this is Paul's eschatological view. Now, we talked about eternity past, as you see in the gray, grayed out part at the top. Paul called, and the Corinthians are called. That's in eternity past. As he wraps up his uh, introduction here to the Corinthians before he starts counseling them, now he's in eternity future. Christ will sustain you to the end. Not only will he sustain you, but you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, God is faithful. You feel the confidence of the great apostle as he is talking to these mean, nasty, difficult people. A couple of verses that will help. I mentioned this earlier in reference, but we can look at it now. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Paul says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This is eternity past. Paul called to be apostle, and the saints at Corinth called to be saints. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Do you feel confident that God is going to finish what he has begun? And we see part of that as we look back in eternity past here in Ephesians. And then in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30, we see this beautiful golden chain. This passage in a couple of sentences says this, For those whom he foreknew, talking about eternity past, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. You will be conformed to the image of his Son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Second sentence. And those whom he predestined, here's the golden links here. And those whom he predestined, one, he also called, two. And those whom he called, he justified, three. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. As he is moving down these golden links, there's predestination in eternity past, then the calling, and then there's justification, a forensic term, when we are born again, we are declared not guilty, and then glorified, the fourth link in this golden chain here, which is eternity future. Now, this is Paul's theology to the Romans, but just like his theology to the Thessalonians, the, his theology to the Ephesians, and also to the Corinthians, Paul was not inconsistent with his theological care, and so you can make these applications to this is how he thought about the Corinthians, and by the way, he is saying these things in other words. God is faithful. You will be guiltless in the day. By the way, that's what justification means, that you have been justified, declared not guilty. And so you will be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because God is faithful. Paul was a confident disciple maker. And I know it is appealing to want to sit under his care because of his attitude toward even the meanest people within his sphere. And then finally, as I've referenced earlier, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, do you hear that confidence, that he who began a good work in eternity past, the prior activity of God, that good work in you will bring it to completion, eternity future, glorified in Romans, uh, verse number 30. 
at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Application statements, today's guilty will be tomorrow's guiltless because of the gospel. A profound thought. The person that you have, the timeline that you have stepped onto to help an individual that God has called from eternity past, as you look down that timeline into eternity future, you know this person will be guiltless before God. No matter what is going on during this short season that you have with them, does that give you confidence? I trust it does. Statement number two, discipleship in part is recognizing that God is at work. If we lose that divine perspective, then we will drown with them. We'll get lost in their weeds. Statement number three, discipleship is more about what God is doing, not what they have done. This is another 1A, 1B statement, and 1A always has to be what God is doing. Paul had faith, not in them. He had faith in God, that God is a finisher. 1A was what God would do. 1B is what they have done. And, of course, that's where the counseling came later, starting in verse number 10. And then number four, never lose hope for those in your care. God finishes what he starts. Essential thing. Right now, God is working all around us and in our lives. One of the greatest tragedies among God's people, while they have a deep longing to experience him and are experiencing him day after day, they do not know how to recognize him. And that's unfortunate. God is working all around us and in us and through us. But too often, we do not recognize him, his work. And as we disciple other people, we don't see his work in their lives. Sometimes we can be so overcome by their sin or the aggravations of the day or the frustrations of whatever's going on in our lives that we miss what God is doing. Paul's confidence for discipleship was rooted in the gospel. I have two application questions here. Are you more prone to be discouraged or complain about an unchanging Christian? Or are you more prone to rest and trust in God who will finish what he has started in their lives? That is a yes or no question, but it would be great to work out your answer with a conversation for transformation. And then number two, how does the gospel affect the biblical solutions for the people within your care? Now, this is a conversational question. Does the gospel drive you rather than worry, fear, frustration, annoyance, impatience, or grumbling? How would you conversate this question? I would encourage you to do that with a friend. Now, here's a final request as I wrap up. Will you work through all the application points, the statements that I've made, and the questions that I've asked you throughout this presentation? Be specific, detailed. Consider sharing the questions and your responses with a friend, appealing to them to come alongside you to apply this material. This is a long-term assignment, maybe one of the more important assignments that you will ever do, whether you're a spouse, a parent, a child, a friend, a biblical counselor, a disciple maker, you are a Christian. As a Christian, this could be one of the more important assignments that you would ever do. This is a life project, and I would encourage you uh, to take the time to go back through the video and take the appropriate screenshots or stop the video and write the uh, application statements down, also the questions, and then be intentional about having a conversation with someone. The big idea in this presentation is Paul's exemplary attitude 
toward the Corinthians and his extraordinary affection for the Corinthians came from his divine perspective of the Corinthians. Before you leave, I would ask, if you don't mind, would you pray for our ministry? Uh, if you would make that a habit, I, I would be so encouraged that God would continue to provide favor for us as we take the practical message of Christ around the world. We are cyber nomadic missionaries. Every day we go around the world, and we can do that through your prayer support. And if you would pray for our ministry, I would appreciate it. You can also practically, you can follow us on socials, and then you can share our content, whether it's from a social platform that you own or from lifeovercoffee.com. You can share our articles. Our content is free, which leads to the final thing. Uh, it's actually not free. Uh, it's underwritten by people, and that's the only way that we can make it free. And so if you are in the position to where you can support us, donate one time on a recurring basis or become a supporting member, if you have any questions about that, please uh, contact our office, let us know. But we do need uh, more supporters. There's no doubt about that. And if you can help underwrite our ministry, it would be a big deal. Or if a church uh, could take us on monthly or annually, that would be just fantastic. We want to keep giving our resources away freely, and we can do that as long as folks provide financially. And so if you'd make that a matter of prayer. I would appreciate it. We also have a mastermind program. It's completely online and self-paced. There's information on our website about that if you would like to learn discipleship and biblical counseling. The title of this presentation is Essential Things Before Helping Someone Change. Thank you so much. My name is Rick Thomas, and you can find me at lifeovercoffee.com. Become a supporting member of our ministry so that we can get together on our private forums and have conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.